This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for April 15th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff writer Liz Panisi. We discuss the negative effect of climate change on an important part of arid ecosystems called biocrusts. This is a thin layer of microbes, fungi, lichen, algae that all work together to preserve water in the soil and feed it nitrogen. After that, we hear from a pair of researchers who wrote in Science Advances on the longevity of the Maya calendar. They used radiocarbon dating to pin down the age of one of the earliest pieces of the calendar to 300 BCE, that's 2,300 years ago. Now we have staff writer Liz Panisi. She wrote this week about biocrust. This is a conglomeration of fungi, lichens, mosses, blue-green algae, other microbes that's under threat from climate change. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I did not know biocrusts were a thing until the news meeting last week when you talked about this story. It's just not a concept I've heard of before. But is this something I've actually likely encountered out there in the world? Probably. If you've walked on deserts, say in a national park or even prairie areas, any dry places tend to have these biocrusts form on top of their soils. Is it crusty? Does it look like a crust? It can. From my experience, I used to live in the Sonoran Desert and there would be this like bumpy, crunchy ground underfoot that would be kind of black in places. That's the biocrust. We know there's like so much desert, so much prairie land, adding it all together. How much of the earth is covered with biocrust? About 40% of the earth is considered to be dry land and about 12% of that is covered with biocrust. Why would it be bad for biocrust to go away in these regions? Biocrusts do several things. For one, they stabilize the soil. They basically act like a skin that kind of keeps the soil together and in. And they also 
absorb water and help retain what water there is in these dry places. Another thing that they do is lichen and to a small extent the blue-green algae will fix nitrogen. That means convert nitrogen from the air into a form that's like fertilizer that the plants and other organisms can make use of to grow and to survive. In your story, you refer to a biocrust as centuries old. Does it take a really long time for it to form? It does. And scientists are just figuring this out because what they've realized is, for example, if you drive across the desert and create tire tracks, those tire tracks will still be there decades later. Wow. So these are important in arid ecosystems, and I guess they're pretty hot places. So why would climate change getting warmer be bad for biocrust? They don't really know. I mean, you're right. For example, the lichen that they found is disappearing in this study is known for living in hot and dry places. So it's confusing as to why, why they would be so affected by the warmer summers. Can you talk a little bit more about the study that you that you wrote about? So the study was started in 1990s as a way to look at the invasion of a type of grass called teak grass into a remote area of Canyonlands National Park. And as part of that study, they took stock of the biocrust. They looked at what organisms were there and how much of the biocrust each type of organism covered. And they did this twice a year through today. So they had a lot of data. We've kind of hinted that there's a decline here, but what specifically did they see going away or, or dying off? There are several kinds of lichen that are in biocrust. Some of them are just photosynthetic, like a plant, and others are nitrogen fixing, sort of like a soybeans are. And what they saw is less and less coverage by lichens that are fixing nitrogen. So for example, one of the lichens is a bright yellow. And so where they might see 10 or 15% of a plot having this bright yellow lichen, now there's none. These are the lichens responsible for nitrogen fixation, or that's one of their main jobs. So what happens when that function goes away in a dry land ecosystem? When you don't have nitrogen fixation, basically you begin to starve all the organisms that are around you. You need nitrogen to make your proteins and every organism needs proteins. So if that supply is cut off, they have trouble growing. You get fewer plants and then the animals are kind of sad, the plants are gone, and it can really go up through the food chain if you lose your nitrogen fixers. Right. You can have a cascading effect on the whole desert ecosystem or the whole drylands ecosystem. So the main focus of your story was on this Utah study, but is there evidence that this biocrust loss or certain parts of the biocrust are dying off in the rest of the world? There is. And I, I don't know any details, but there was one researcher whose group did a, a modeling study looking at what the potential decline in biocrust might be given global warming. And they find 25% or more might disappear within the next 50 to 75 years. So is this something that we can reverse by introducing lichen or growing the stuff in the lab and putting it outside? Is there any way to rehab this or replace this? Well, there is a big movement going on to replace 
BioCrust in general, because people have realized we've trampled all over them and cattle have trampled all over them when they're feeding in these open range areas. And scientists are able to grow and transplant BioCrust. But BioCrust come in many forms and some forms don't have lichen in them and other forms do. And they have not been able to grow and transplant BioCrust that have lichen in them. We talked about the lack of nitrogen fixation and the lack of food for the food chain. But isn't there also stuff that happens to the soil, like it starts to blow away and come looser? When a BioCrust disappears, the soil becomes unstable. The water isn't retained. So what can happen is you get more bare ground and more dust. And dust can have a lot of consequences on public health. They even think that the loss of BioCrust might be contributing to an increase of a disease called valley fever, which is common in the U.S. Southwest that's caused by a fungus. They haven't proven this yet, but that's what they suspect. One thing I was wondering is, if, how does this link to desertification? These are already arid places. Some of them are even deserts that have biocrust. But is there a difference between that and what we think of as things turning into desert? Yeah. People think of deserts as being just one uniform thing. But actually, there are very distinct stages that deserts go through as they become the desert that you think of, like in the Sahara, where it's all sand and no life at all. And There are deserts like in the American Southwest, which are very rich in plants and animals. And when you lose your source of nitrogen, then you can possibly wind up with fewer plants, more bare ground that can become dust. But that fewer plants means that there's fewer places for the lizards to hide, less fruit for the birds to feed on. So it has a can have a big cascading effect. So it's on a step to getting more and more dried out and lifeless. That's right. All right, Liz, so what do we do? How do we stop it? Is the only way to reverse this, basically to stop climate change then? Yeah, that's what the researchers think. But what they don't know and haven't really had the time to figure out because biocrusts sort of live on the order of centuries and we've been looking at them only decades, it is possible for, for example, biocrust to change and become more full of the blue-green algae that might also fix nitrogen and help replace what's being lost by the lichens. So we don't really know what will happen. So we don't know if there is some flexibility, some adaptability to these biocrusts until we keep pushing them and find out whether they make it or not. That's exactly right. All right. Thanks, Liz. Well, thank you. Liz Panisi is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researchers David Stewart and Heather Hurst about very early evidence for the Maya calendar from the San Bartolo site in Guatemala. Listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science 
and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. The Maya calendar was in widespread use in the classical period, which begins around the year 250. But when did the Maya calendar first come to be? This week in Science Advances, Heather Hurst and David Stewart wrote about some of the earliest evidence for the calendar that dates all the way back to 300 BCE. They've both been intimately involved in an archaeological site called San Bartolo, its writing and its paintings, and they're here to talk about what they've discovered there about the history of the Maya calendar. Welcome, Heather. Welcome, David. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Great to have you. Can we start with the site? Where in the world are we? We say Mayan, but that could mean a bunch of different places. So this is the Maya Biosphere Reserve, the northern third of the country of Guatemala. Today, it's a rich, lush, tropical forest. However, it used to be the heartland of the Maya world. And at the time that the site of San Bartolo was in use, it was a landscape of big cities and small villages. Right. So what does the site itself look like, San Bartolo? Is it overgrown? Is it uncovered? The site itself is completely covered by dense jungle today. When you walk through the forest, you'll see these kind of large mounds and you'll start to recognize that these don't seem natural. And in fact, they weren't. All these mounds that you see on the forest floor there, they were actually buildings, some huge 30 foot tall pyramids. And occasionally you get glimpses of stonework. So you'll see lines of stone that might have been steps or the corners of a building. But for the most part, it's all covered in this dense jungle. And that has preserved the site for us to research today. The piece of the Mayan calendar that came from this complex in San Bartolo, where exactly was it found in one of these mounds that you're describing? Yeah, it was a chance discovery. One of these mounds, which we've now called Las Pinturas, meaning the paintings, was discovered in 2001, and it led to the establishment of our archaeological project. We started investigating this mound because a small area of mural painting was exposed by looters who had tunneled into this pyramid looking for things to sell. And what this discovery led to was us investigating the various phases of the pyramid. The ancient Maya would build one building on top of the next as a way of kind of honoring those that came before. And what we found is that this one pyramid had seven architectural phases. So seven buildings, one on top of the next. And even the earliest phases had mural paintings. We also discovered that the majority of the murals were broken in antiquity by the Maya. And what they do is be break the paintings and then bury them as a way of terminating a building and honoring it as well before building a new one. So what we ended up with was a jigsaw puzzle of nearly 7,000 mural fragments. And we're looking at just a handful, just 11 fragments from the earliest phase that have text on them. Okay, so we're getting now into what we're going to call a piece of a calendar or a glyph. David, can you tell us why this is called a glyph and what exactly it looks like? Several of these fragments that came out of this very early phase of the Pinturas Pyramid had clearly writing on them, so ancient Maya writing. And these were exciting to find because we really don't have many examples at all of this early phase of Maya hieroglyphs, or glyphs as we call them for short. And they were so early that they were very hard to read. We can actually read the Maya hieroglyphic system from later Maya history, from the classic period. 
we're dealing with fragments from the pre-classic. And it's like dealing with writing that's five or 600 years old for us, right? It's very hard to read some of those manuscripts. So it's a challenge. But one of the things that popped out at us on one of the fragments was clearly a record of a date in the Maya calendar system. It had the date seven deer, which is not a counting of deer, but a combination of a number and a day name. So the number seven and a day named deer, which is very familiar to us from what we know about the Maya calendar. Does the seven deer glyph look like a deer? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, it does. If you have a good eye for Maya hieroglyphs, I think when we first saw it come out of the tunnel, it was pretty easy to read and recognize the number seven is a little bit broken. It's pretty well preserved otherwise. And we could see the profile head of a deer with the antlers and the ear, very beautifully painted by this master scribe. So it really popped out to us as a date glyph. And yeah, the identity of the deer head was pretty clear as well. When you say seven deer, it's a day name. So that's not a year. It's not saying, oh, this is the calendar from the year, whatever, like a Wednesday or like the 15th of January. Yeah, <laughs> a bit like the 15th of January. I mean, it, it's a cycle we know that is 260 days long. So this is a combination of a, a number from one to 13 and 20 different named days. So you put a number and a day together, these cycle through and repeat 13 times 20 or 260, right? So you have the number seven, you have the day named deer, and that will appear, you know, as a day twice a year, more or less. It doesn't really give us a precise date in history, but it's just the earliest, really nicely dated example of this calendar system. When you say this is a dated date, a dated piece of the calendar, we're talking about radiocarbon dating. So what piece of this material was dated and what date was revealed? The mural fragments were all buried deep amongst rock and mud that was basically used as the foundation of the next pyramid. So all that rubble and fill. And the fragments were mixed in there with it. So we're not dating the physical mural fragment itself, we're dating the carbon that was in material surrounding it. The material from within the pyramid, the sub-5 pyramid, would give us the earliest possible date for the mural fragments. And the second set of samples from the fill would give us the later possible date of those mural fragments. They give us a range from 400 to 100 BCE for the pyramid sub-5. And about 60 years later, bracketing, for when that fill covered it up. With statistical analysis that would kind of narrow in the modeling of these dates, we've narrowed this down to that the texts themselves were likely painted and incised between 300 and 200 BCE, but they're most probably from that latter half of the third century. That's pretty old for finding a piece of the Mayan calendar. This is pre-classic. Are there other places where a comparably dated calendar has been found? Well, there are early dates from Mesoamerica that are pre-classic. So we have records of the same calendar in other parts of the Maya world, and even over in other parts of Mesoamerica, over in Mexico and Oaxaca, there are some early, early dates. The problem, though, is that most of those are on stone, on stone monuments, which are notoriously hard to date. I mean, it's really hard to date a carved rock unless you have a good sealed context for it which we really don't have in those other examples. But here at San Bartolo, 
really for the first time, we have a really tight sealed context to use carbon dating to date one of these early records of the Maya calendar. What do we know about the people who created this glyph and the other art that was there? One thing that is really interesting about this collection of just 11 tiny fragments is that among those 11 fragments, we have at least three to four different styles represented. So not only do we have some amazing you kind of scribal hands being evidence, but it's clear that there are more than one scribe doing these so that we have a community of writers and folks that were using the calendar, that it wasn't just in the hands of one individual, but there was an intellectual community at San Bartolo between 300 and 200 BCE. So we, we think this calendar, you know, is from 300 BCE. How long were people living on this site before that and after that? We think that it probably was actively inhabited and a community starting in the middle pre-classic period. So, you know, that would maybe be around 600, 500 BCE. Like many Maya centers, there's kind of a boom that happens culturally in terms of population. And the site is most famous for the paintings that come just a couple of centuries later from the fragment that we're reporting on here. There's a mural chamber in the same complex that's pretty well known now to Maya archaeologists with these beautiful paintings of the Maya creation story. And they also have hieroglyphs dating to maybe about 100 BC to the year zero, somewhere in there. And it continued to be an active community into the end of the late pre-classic. By the time the classic period comes around, around 200, 300 AD, a neighboring site takes off called Shultun, which is really a mega city for the ancient Maya. And that's also part of our collaborative project is to study how these sites are related to each other and how they rose and fell together. How does this finding at San Bartolo fit in with the history of the Mayan calendar? What do we know about where it originated, how it spread through Mesoamerica? It used to be thought that this calendar system that we find all throughout Mesoamerica, including with the Maya, might have originated over in Oaxaca in southern Mexico. It turns out that this new find is at least as early as anything from that area. And it really makes us wonder if the calendar system may have actually developed in other parts of Mesoamerica. It could easily have developed in the Maya region, I think. We're still lacking definitive evidence about where it actually was invented. And that may always be a question for us. But what we now see is that probably by 400, 500 BCE, there were lots of people using this calendar. It's clearly well-developed in this relatively small site, right, in Guatemala. So it, it hints that there's centuries of development before it. And what's also amazing is that the calendar is still being used. It was used at the time of Spanish contact in the 16th century. And it was maintained in several communities up to the present day in Guatemala and also in, in parts of Mexico. You both have worked on this site for, it sounds like a long time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lord have mercy, yes. What has changed and developed for you like at this site over whatever number of decades you have been visiting it? When San Bartolo was first discovered 20 years ago, it was this moment of excitement, but we didn't really quite know what we had. And over the past two decades now, the more we excavate at the site and that we are uncovering these outstanding artworks, 
as well as the small community that created them, it gives you just a different sense of what was going on in what we had termed the pre-classic, this period from 400 BC to AD 250, where it wasn't a developmental period. It, it was a time where people had exquisite artworks and were using writing and the calendar and had this intense understanding of landscape and supernatural forces within it, this belief system that was very complex and well-described. It gives a whole new sense for what this heartland really was like in the past. For me, the last couple of decades at San Bartolo have really shown that the site and the project, it's just nonstop in terms of what that material and research has given us. We're so used to the later sites like Palenque and Copan and Tikal that have the monuments and the, the written history of kings and conquests and so forth. This earlier phase, we still are struggling to understand in many ways, but San Bartolo changed our complete understanding of the art of this period and also of the literacy of the people of this period. I would just add too that one remarkable aspect of San Bartolo is that it was discovered as one tiny pyramid in very remote location in the Maya Biosphere Reserve. And the fact that the Maya Biosphere Reserve is protected is the reason we were able to do this investigation and the, the reason that these sites are protected. And there are countless thousands of mounds out there that are yet to be studied. And uh, their continued protection of this amazing biodiversity hotspot is really important for the environment, as well as uh, the cultural heritage of the Maya peoples today. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Heather Hurst is a professor of anthropology at Skidmore College and the director of the San Bartolo Shultun Regional Archaeological Project in Guatemala. David Stewart is a professor of art history and the director of the Mesoamerican Center at the University of Texas at Austin. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed and some of the pictures of the artwork at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.